Pastor Scott last week covered the second eight or nine verses, did a great job. And what we've been saying is that this letter to the Romans is really the gospel. It's about the gospel. He'd never been to this church. And we asked the question a couple weeks ago, what would Paul want to say? What would Paul want a group of Christians to know whom he's never met? And the answer is he'd want them to know the gospel, the most important thing. He's not so much concerned with all their specific issues that they're struggling with. He really just wants them to know about the most important issue of life, and that is the good news about God. And that's what the gospel is. It's the good news from God about God. And last week, Pastor, Pastor Scott talked about how the gospel is power. The gospel is something we, we, that liberates people. It's power for salvation. We shouldn't be ashamed of it because God's not ashamed of us. It was just a great message and reminder about how great this news is. But today we're going to sort of take a turn in this series. The first two weeks have been a little more encouraging and exciting and building some momentum. But now we're going to take a drastic turn as we look at the rest of chapter 1. And there's sort of a contrast going on. Because Paul's been talking about how good the gospel is. But today he's going to talk about something that's not so good. And I, I want to try to explain this to you by, by illustrating how artists create their artwork. So an artist, if an artist wants to create light on canvas, they have to start with dark shadows. They have to paint dark shadows first. And so, for example, the, the great artist, Vincent van Gogh, uh, the great Dutch artist, he, one of his most famous paintings was A Starry Night. And I actually have a picture of it here for you. A Starry Night. Oh, wait a minute. That's not actually it. That's, uh, next picture, please. This is actually A Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. Wait a minute. Go back one. There. That's the one I really want. Aren't people creative? Come on. All right. Actually, go to the next slide. There, There's the actual, not the actual, but there's a picture of the actual painting that Vincent van Gogh is most famous for, A Starry Night. Why is that painting so famous and so iconic? The, one of the main reasons is Vincent van Gogh's brilliant use of light on darkness. He, he's able to contrast, maybe better than anybody else, light and darkness. He started out with the dark shadows in the back. You have to start there before you create the illusion of light. That's what it is. It's the illusion of light. That painting doesn't actually produce any light. But it appears to because of the dark shadows. And the Apostle Paul is also an artist of sorts because he knows that for us, to understand how bright God is and how glorious he is and how good the gospel is, he has to talk about darkness first. He has to create some dark shadows, as it were, for us to see just how good and bright the gospel is. And so we're going to look today at one of the darkest passages of the entire Bible, and I want to tell you that we need to hear this. We need to hear how dark things really are so that we can understand just how good the good news is. I mean, the, the truth is that 
If you're a person who's content to be just a lukewarm Christian, if there is such a thing, or if you're content to be just a good person, if there is such a thing, but not a Jesus freak, or if you are a person who's not on fire for Christ and for the gospel, the reason may be that you just don't understand how good the good news about God really is. And the reason you don't understand how good it is and how crazy you should be about this gospel that we keep talking about is because you don't understand how bad the bad news is. You don't understand how dark reality really is. You haven't really understood the condition that most people are resigned to live with apart from the true knowledge of God. And so we're going to discover today what's so great about the good news, why we so desperately need it. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And I'm going to read just the whole passage for you. I think you need to hear it just all together. And then we'll talk about what it means. So if you'll follow along in the book of Romans, right after the book of Acts and the Gospels in your Bibles, chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let me pray. Our Father God, I pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate your word to us, that you would give us clarity and understanding about how glorious and good you are in response 
to the darkness that we are exposed to every day. I pray, God, that today you would expose the darkness of our own hearts and that you would lead us to repent and to rejoice in every good thing that you've given us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, the Apostle Paul (laughs) just gave us a very uh, long, deep, dark, graphic description of people who do not honor God with their lives. He didn't really introduce it or explain it or prepare us for it. He just unloaded on us, is what he did. But if he wanted to prepare us, he probably would have said this. Here is why I'm eager to preach the gospel to believers and unbelievers. Here is why I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here is why I'm so passionate about this gospel. And here is why this news is so urgent today. The reason is because the wrath of God is a present reality. The wrath of God is here. It's live. It's unfolding right now. This isn't some, uh, the wrath of God is not some distant, abstract concept that we can't see. It's here now. So what is the wrath of God? Paul doesn't even give us a description, really. Historically speaking. He doesn't just explain where it came from. He just tells us that it's here. So I just want to offer you a very brief, concise, and I think accurate definition of what the, how, how to, a good way to understand God's wrath. It's offered by the evangelist and author Becky Pipper. And this is what she says about God's wrath. Which is really, a, wrath is, is obviously a synonym for anger. It's another way to understand it. And what she says is, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final, final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. In other words, what she's saying, and I believe the biblical writers agree, that God's wrath is inevitable, it's fair, it's right, and it's his terrible anger towards sin. That's what it is. It's God's settled response to sin and evil in this world. Uh, another author and theologian, Miroslav Volf, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but I, he said something like, you know, if God were not opposed to sin and didn't, uh, didn't act in a way, a personal way, against sin, against evil and injustice, he wouldn't be worth worshiping. If he was indifferent towards evil and sin, he wouldn't be worth worshiping. And yet, so many people today, they want, to, they want to think of God as a God of love and not of wrath. Because God's wrath seems to, to some people, contradict his love. But we would never talk about, we don't ever talk about people that way. We know that if people love something, or if they love someone, a mother's love for her child, and something threatens that child, what's the mother going to do? She's going to respond in wrath to whatever that thing is that's threatening her child. And a father would do the same thing and because that's what love does. Love always responds to those types of threats. So we can't choose one without the other. Now, what is God's wrath aimed at? What causes it? There's three things we're given right, right away in this passage. Three things. Ungodliness, we're told that God's wrath is revealed right now against ungodliness, which is people who are living 
without regard for God. That's what that means. It's people who are living as if God doesn't exist or, if, or as if what God has said doesn't matter. Secondly, God's wrath is in response to unrighteousness. Unrighteousness has to do with other people, those who are living without regard for others, as if others don't exist, as if what others need doesn't matter. Okay, those are, that's what ungodliness and unrighteousness are. So in other words, God's wrath is being revealed right now against the rejection of the two greatest commandments. Love God with everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. When people don't live with those two commandments in view, they're invoking God's wrath. That's what, we're, that's what Paul's saying here. And then thirdly, he says that God's wrath comes in response to people who suppress the truth by unrighteousness. How do people supp- hold down the truth, in other words, with unrighteousness? How do they do that? In verse 19, we're told that even though people have a knowledge of God, God has given us all the evidence we need to acknowledge Him as being in charge, as being worthy of our worship. Even though every single person has the knowledge of God in their heart, everyone has seen enough of God to know that He's there, to know that He deserves their allegiance. Everybody, whether they've heard the gospel or not, has enough knowledge to honor God and give thanks to God and and worship God. Even though that's true, Paul says. They do not honor God as God. They do not give thanks to God. And they have replaced God with someone or something else as their ultimate aim. They have replaced God as their ultimate treasure and authority. And this, we are told, makes God angry. That people have seen the evidence. They've been exposed to the truth. They have a knowledge of God, enough knowledge of God to give God thanks and honor, and they they choose to reject Him. So human beings, basically what he's saying here, they take the truth of God, they exchange it for a lie, we create versions of God that we can live with. That's what we do. We create alternate versions of God that we can live with, that we're comfortable with. Ideas about God that allow us to live however we want. One of the most popular ones in America is that God is love. He's just a God of love. That Old Testament God, he was a different kind of God. He was an angry God and he exacted justice with people. He held people accountable. But today, God has softened, thankfully. And now, everyone's good with God because God is love and he can't possibly judge people because a God of love wouldn't do that. A God of love wouldn't take vengeance on people. That's not loving, is it? So let's just say that everybody's in. Everybody's good with God. We can all live with that. But that is not the God we're given in the New Testament. And it's not the God we're given in the Old Testament either, quite frankly. It's the same God, of course. We talked about that in week one. And he's a God of love and he's a God of justice. He's a God of Mercy, and he's a God of order. He's a God of holiness. And he's a God of extravagant grace. Which means we owe him everything. We owe him everything. 
And so what we've done is we've taken this perfect order that God has established from the beginning of time, from the beginning of creation, which Paul is clearly pointing to. He's pointing back to Genesis 1. And he's in he, where, where God was on the top and man was in the middle and creation was under man and man was given to rule over creation under the authority of God to display God's rule and authority and glory in the world. And we've turned it upside down so that now creation's on top, man's in the middle. We serve and worship created things, money, power, sex, relationships, people. And then we place God on the bottom so that we can look down on God and hold him to our standards. That's a God we can live with. And that allows us to live however we want. That's what we've done. We've turned the whole thing, the whole scheme, the whole order upside down. And we've put ourselves at the center. And we've made ourselves the object of worship. So, for example, if you were to invite me, we've exchanged God's glory for a lesser glory. That's what we've done. I had a friend once who in, invited me to climb Mount Rainier in Washington. I have a picture of it here. And there it is. That's, uh, this picture was taken 50 miles away from Mount Rainier. Those little shops with the lights on down there are probably a quarter mile away. Mount Rainier is 50 miles away. That's how majestic it is. I didn't go. We, I didn't go on the trip. But he wanted me to go on this trip with him to climb Mount Rainier. And... Just imagine if you would, if I decided, he showed me pictures. I've never actually seen it, the, mount, the mountain. But just imagine if you would, if I actually went on this trip with him to, to go to Seattle. You know, he, and he said, I'm going to pay for your trip. I'm going to pay for your flight, the hotel, for all your equipment. And I'm going to take you. I want you to come on this journey with me and experience this with me. Just because I love you. You're my friend, you know. And so I said, all right, that sounds good. So I go on the trip. We get there. And we, we get to the place where we're driving towards the mountain. He's like, hey, there, let's just stop and get out and just take this in. Let's look at this for a minute. So we get out of the car. We're looking at the mountain. And I look at that mountain. And I'm like, that's it, huh? Wow. Oh, look at this. Look at this rock. Isn't this amazing? And I pick up some silly little pebble on the ground. And I just am in awe of this thing. And like, this is what it's about. You know what? You go climb the mountain. I'm just going to stand here and take in this rock for the next few days. I'm going to play with it. I'm going to throw it up in the air and catch it and do all manner of silly things with this rock. I know that sounds ridiculous. But that's what idolatry is. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And my friend would have been angry with me, rightfully so. Are you kidding me? I just paid for you to come out here and experience this mountain with me. And here I've said, I don't want to experience it. I just want to see it. Okay, I saw it. Let's go home. And that's essentially what people do with God. They see God in his creation, but they don't choose to experience him, to really know him. A picture of God is enough, but they, a concept of God is enough, but they, they refuse to experience him. They refuse to bow down to him. And God is like, hey, I've made you to climb a mountain. What are you doing just holding this rock? I've made you to see the world as I see it. And it's an awesome view. And you want to stand down here and play with these things? Come on. What a waste. I've created you for so much more. And God is angered by that. And he's right to be angered by it. 
He's right. God is right to be angry with people when we exchange his glory for a lesser glory. The wrath of God is his right response to idolatry. Now notice that Paul only gives us two options in this passage. He says that people either worship God or they worship something or someone else. There's no third kind of person. There's just those two. Every human being is a worshiper. Every human being is driven by some purpose. Desire and affection and passion is driving everyone on the planet. Our problem is not a lack of desire or passion. Our problem is the object of that desire, of those desires and passions. That's our problem. And by the way, Paul is not warning us against bowing down to statues, okay? Even the ancient people of the world in the first century who Paul is writing to were way more sophisticated than that. And we know that because Paul links idolatry with sexual sin. Did you notice that? He, in another place, in Colossians, he links idolatry with greed and materialism. In, in his letter to the Galatian churches, he links idolatry to religion and obedience to traditions and codes and laws. So what he's talking about for us is idols of the heart. Desires and affections in our hearts that fight for our attention every day and, dis- and take our mind and our attention and our focus off of God and onto other things. David Paulison summarizes this idea. He says, if idolatry is the summary Old Testament word for our drift from God, then desires is the summary New Testament word for the same drift. Both are shorthand for the problem of human beings. The New Testament merges the concept of idolatry and the concept of inordinate life ruling desires. So he's saying the two are, this, are synonymous. That word lust in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. That word literally means over desire, like a super desire, an all-consuming longing or passion that somebody has for something besides God. That's what he's talking about. It's the kind of passion and desire that causes people to withhold from God what rightfully belongs to him. It could be money. It could be praise. It could be gratitude and honor. It could be focus and attention and, t- and time. But ultimately, what people withhold from God is worship. Idolatry happens when we give our best to something besides God or someone besides God. Only God deserves our best. And idolatry happens when we give our best to something else. That makes God angry It causes him to unleash his wrath today. To reveal his wrath now. So, in other words, you know, we we sometimes think of God's wrath as him showering down lightning and thunder and balls of fire down on people. But that's not how God's wrath is described here. It's described here as something... Here's what it's described as. He uses this phrase three times in this passage. God gave them over. In verse 24, he gave them over to these evil.